You take your Bibles and open back up to Revelation, Revelation chapter 14 this morning. And in a similar way to, I think, the nature of Revelation 14, uh, you, you've had a breather. Hopefully you've been encouraged in the Lord. I think, and I'm going to argue this morning, that Revelation is extremely practical. But I, I, I get where you might have got bogged down looking at Satan in chapter 12 and the Antichrist and the false prophet in chapter 13. Um, so I know it's been now three weeks we've been off of Revelation. Two weeks we're actually uh, in God's providence. I was in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. And then I know uh, last week uh, you, we, you guys were in uh, Hebrews chapter 1. So I guess the Lord saw fit. You wanted to see Christ in those places. And, um, but there's no more Christological or book about Christ than Revelation. But even in Revelation, there's breaks. Uh, breaks from the judgment. Breaks from the devastation. And 14 is one of those breaks where we kind of have the middle of Revelation, if you think of it that way. Um, there from 11 and 12, when you move and you kind of have a break before we get into the final bull judgments. You, you have a little bit of history, divine history, you need to know about to know what's going to happen as the world winds down. You need to know about this cosmic battle between Satan and God. You need to know about the, the way in which he's going to empower the Antichrist and the false prophet. Um, in 11, or in uh, 13, but also we need to look back and go, well then, if this is so awful, this is so horrible, what about God's people there? And we believe the church, yes, is raptured, but... God is still working and the even gospel is being proclaimed and the most powerful evangelists of that time are these sealed 144,000 men as we'll see in these five verses, which we've seen before. But this should cause us to be encouraged. Um, and there's some truths about the way God works in here, some general truths that should find us encouraged in the way that he is sovereign over not only tomorrow in the future, but he's sovereign over today in his church as well as over the future and the end. And he's able to keep and hold those who are his, which is exactly what we will see here in chapter 14. So look with me at these first five verses. We'll read them together. Revelation 14 verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Father, we come now to learn from your word, to be instructed the ways that you will work in the future, but recognizing that this book is addressed to your church, that we might know how you will act in the future, that we might trust you today. So encourage us as we look and even review where we've been in this great book, your truth to us, your really, your final world to the church in this age. And we long for you to return, even as John, at the end of this book, come Lord, come. 
We just ask that you'd be honored and your son glorified this morning. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, what fuels your fears? If you are human this morning, and I'm guessing all of you are, then you have some fears. You have some fears that are rational, and you have some fears that are likely irrational, and you, you may or may not agree that they are irrational. I am a third-born son, although I do have one younger sibling, and, you know, I wasn't as bad as the older brother, who will remain nameless. Some of you may know. Um, but I remember multiple times where we played on my poor little sister's fears. Some of you know Fremont, Nebraska. Um, my grandfather had a house on uh, Ventura. There's a lake in uh, Fremont, just by the state lakes, called Ventura. And she was convinced because of her older brothers, one, that she could never, ever walk across the bridge, because there's a bridge to an island, because the bridge would collapse. And we also convinced her that there were alligators in the water. And so she would never, ever, like, we went through a whole summer where you couldn't get her in the boat because there were alligators. And so you kind of go, well, that doesn't seem rational. But you go, someone who's younger, four, five, six years old, they don't know much. They, they don't have a whole world to test things against, and their, their fears can become irrational. But what fuels, as hopefully older, more mature adults this morning, what fuels, what kind of stokes the fire of our fears? And I thought about that, and it's not just a lack of information. Because there's certain things that I'm sure are going to happen in my future that are terrible that I don't even want to know about. And so being omniscient and knowing that something bad is going to happen or something difficult is going to happen is really no comfort. That doesn't assuage my fear. So it's not just information or wisdom. It's, it's really the lack of power. It's the lack of ability that I have to change any of it. And in that way, I'm almost okay with not knowing because I know I can't change. I don't have the power The only one who could live without fear is the one who has unlimited power. Who knows all things, but also has the ability and the power to control all things. And there's only one that that fits. And the one that has no fear that we know, has no fear, is God himself. Who from the beginning has had a plan. And there's not one moment where he is going to be on his back heels wondering, "Uh uh-oh, I must react. In fact, this morning, we talked a little bit about narrative in um, the How to Study the Bible class and just how you see certain plot lines in narrative. And one of the more interesting plot lines throughout the Gospels is what seems to be that Satan himself is a little bit schizophrenic, that he's a little bipolar in the sense of which he seems to, throughout the Gospels, not want Jesus dead and then want Jesus dead and then not want Jesus dead. And you're kind of left wondering, what does Satan want? Because he seems to use Peter as his mouthpiece, for example, in Mark chapter 8. To say, no, you're not going to die. And when Peter says, you're not going to die, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That he would avoid the sacrificial death of Christ. That would be something that, of course, would be against the will of the Father, against God's plan. But then also you get towards the end of the Gospels and you see that the ones in power, they are, Jesus is saying that in Matthew, that there's two days, and it's kind of an amazing passage because Jesus there is saying, in two days the Passover is going to happen and I'm going to be crucified. And the next two sentences tell you about how the chief priests and all the leaders get together and they say, 
We want to kill him. But we're not going to on the Passover. We're not going to do it during the festival lest there be a riot. And that contrast and that kind of interesting, well, who's right? And what does Satan want? And I even think in there when we preach through Matthew, um, I taught it that way. I really do think what's going on in Satan's mind at that point is he's thinking, I will get him arrested. Because the most unlikely thing to happen is if he's arrested, there's no way they're going to have a trial overnight and crucify him on the Passover the next day. Because Satan knows, just as the father knows, that he's going to die as the Passover lamb right at Passover when the other lambs are being sacrificed in the afternoon. And so you're left with that kind of understanding of he is so sovereign, even over, and we've seen this throughout Revelation, even over Satan himself, that when Satan actually tries to thwart his plan, his very action set in motion God's plan. That's what it means to be sovereign, not just over today, tomorrow, but forever. And that's where Revelation, of course, leads us. And I find comfort in that because despite being a believer for a number of years, I still have fears. And a book like Revelation sits out there to me as extremely practical because it reminds me that I don't need to have those fears because I serve a God who is in control and that he's sovereign. And one of those ways that the Bible teaches us that is it looks towards the future and it says he controls the future and it brings comfort to us. And so I don't think as you Flip back here to the beginnings of Revelation since it has been a few weeks. I don't think that because Revelation has a lot of figurative language and it can be challenging. I don't think it should be avoided because we've seen in and through over the number of weeks we've been here that Revelation is very practical. So much so that the audience is primarily the church. It's the seven churches that this is addressed to. And even though I don't believe what we know, these seven didn't face it because they're long and gone. I don't even think the church today, we believe the church is raptured between three and four, that they're there. But we need to know what's going to happen because it instructs us and encourages us for today. And you see that over and over again throughout Revelation. And so I want to remind us real quickly as, as kind of a way to get back in what Revelation is about, what is, is describing. And it's describing the return of Christ, but not his return for salvation as much as his return in judgment that he's taking back what is rightfully his. That is, right now, the ruler of this age is a counterfeit. He's a fake king. He's a false prophet. He is a false messiah. There is even coming towards the end here, the false peace that comes on a white horse that looks like the white horse that Christ will ride in, but it's not him. We've seen that here in Revelation. But you go back to chapter 1 and what he's writing to these seven churches. We looked at Revelation 1.19 kind of as a outline for the book that he's saying, therefore write the things which you have seen. This is to John. Write these things you've seen. And we see that in chapters 1 and 2 or uh, chapter 1, excuse me. And then the things which are in chapters 2 and 3 to the churches and then Exactly the way chapter 4 starts that after these things as the third big phase of this book. And so, in essence, it's writing things he's seeing in chapter 1 of his visions to the churches. And then also into after these things, after the churches, then we'll see what happens afterwards. Chapter 4 as what kicks off this major event, not just in 
human history, but in, 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 in God's redemptive plan is the lamb receiving the scroll, the deed to the universe. And he receives it, the worthy one who is able to take it back. And that kicks it off. And so we've seen that. If you go over to chapter 4, we find ourselves at the throne room in heaven. And after these things, looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And first a voice which I had heard, like the sound of the trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So into the future, this moment will come and this will kick off what then progresses to the end of, and really you could say, even the way that the cosmic events happen that are very related to the first seven days or first six days of creation. You see the uncreation of the world as God takes it back and then remakes it as his own wants again. But it is in heaven here where they are crying out, Holy, holy, verse 8, is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is to come. They're falling down, giving Christ what is rightfully his. And the only crying in heaven we see, chapter 5, verse 4, is that they are crying because, and it says, crying greatly, no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And the one of the elders said to him, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. He says, stop crying. The wait's over. There is one who is able to make all things right. And so that kicks off all of these events that are described from chapter 6 forward, which we've seen in kind of, I don't bring the graph this morning, but this kind of, telescoping effect of inside is all contained, but then as it's stretched out and we, we see it happen, that there are those seven seals. And then the seventh seal contains those seven trumpets. And each time there's kind of an interlude before then, as we're in the kind of an interlude right now, before you get back to the seventh trumpet, which contains those seven bowl judgments that are coming quickly. But we're going to see in the midst here, there's another break. Because what we saw in chapter 6, is all of this judgment to begin. This great tribulation begins. In fact, the kings of the earth, and everyone says, 6 verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able, who is able to stand? And this is helpful for us because some of this similar language, the standing around the throne, hearing these things, hearing as we'll see in 14, but verse, or chapter 7 is extremely helpful because this is the group This is the biography of them who then is considered in these first five verses of chapter 14. We're introduced to these 140,000 and we see that they have a place, a unique role. And in the vision in chapter 7, he says, after these things that he's seen, the, the, the seals, the first six seals, you have kind of a break. And I think you have the break because after all the judgment of these six seals... And a third of the earth and, and all the stuff that has happened. We're going, well, is anything going to survive? And so John gets a vision that, yes, there are those of two groups that are major, major roles throughout the scriptures. And one is, well, what about Israel? And the other is, what about the nations? And that's throughout your Old Testament over and over again. You describe Israel nations, Israel nations. What about them? 
And you see Israel addressed one through eight. That there will be some sealed from each tribe. And then verse nine, after these things, I look, behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is, the Lord is still saving, still working here. The focus goes back to Israel, but even still through them, the nations are being saved. And these are described here in verse 3 of chapter 7. The 144,000 where they're holding back these angels. Do not harm the earth in verse 3 or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. What's that sealing? So they heard the number of those being sealed, having been sealed as 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 times these 12. And we won't go into details, but it's interesting the 12 tribes that are mentioned because there's some that are left out. Where's Dan? And it seemed, at least briefly, that the northern tribe of Dan, which was always known for idolatry, is left out and is seemingly replaced here. Levi gets a place, and usually they don't in the list because they don't have land because they're the priests. But here they are given a name among the tribes. But they're sealed and they're sealed for a purpose, which we're going to see more into focus here as you come to chapter 14. But after that interlude, you're right back into it. This is about the return of Christ and judgment. So we never get too far away, even if we'd like to, from judgment. Because in chapter 8 and 9, you see the trumpets blowing and the judgment coming on the earth, both cosmic and even persecution that arises. And it's all described in another break in verse, or chapter 10, where you need encouragement again. And you're encouraged by looking that God will one day soon intervene. We're just described that it's a good thing that he's taking what is rightfully back his. But even though it's sweet, the description in verse 10 of chapter 10 is that that little scroll, which I think describes then the scroll we saw in chapter 4, but just imagine smaller because it has to be eaten here. When it is taken by John and he eats it, it'll make your stomach, it says, bitter, but your mouth and it will, will taste sweet. And so John does that in 10. He says, I'll take the little scroll out of the angel's hand and I ate it in the mouth. In my mouth, it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And so like much of even the life that we all lead in today, there's some wonderful things about life. There's some beautiful, sweet things about the gospel and seeing lives transformed and seeing children saved. But yet we still live in a world and that has all kinds of wickedness and evil and trouble. And so it's bitter honey. And so there's encouragement. John is seeing things wondrous to behold. Things that have been prophesied throughout all of Scripture are coming to pass in his visions. But yet he also knows it's going to come through judgment. And so you must, he says, 11, prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tribes, kings, and tribes. And so then introduce these two witnesses we've seen who become their own preachers. The world hates them, we see over and over, but they play a very specific role here. And they're going to prophesy for the 1260 days, which is just another account, 360 times three and a half, that three and a half year period clothed in sackcloth. 
We look back at Zechariah and this relationship to what it looked like for the two olive trees and the two lampstands to stand before the Lord of the earth. And then comes back to the seventh trumpet. is introduced, but we really don't see its full fruition really till 15 and then 16 where you see the seven bowls. So if you're still hanging with me, lots of sevens, remember? This idea of completion. But each time John gives us history, or the Spirit through John gives us history, he also follows up with some encouraging news. Because again, this audience is originally those seven churches in that first century and for even the church today. And so it is good and necessary that we know something about the war that goes on in heaven in chapter 12. It's good and necessary to, to know that there, even though there's the spirit even today of the Antichrist, that it is going to be personified in an actual person one day who's going to deceive. But at some point, after all that has happened at the end of 13, which is now almost a month ago for us, we see that he causes all the small, the great, the rich, and the poor, the free men, the slaves, that they be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and that no one will be able to buy or to sell. This idea, the the mark of the beast, except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And there is some sense where the ones, I think, of that day would be, they would understand this. Here's the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. His number is 666. One less than completion. It's not seven. And it seems to be the representative of this system. But there are those who will not take that mark, who are not going to be identified by that. Why their foreheads? Why their hands? Because those are the things that would be visible to know whose are you. This is an issue of identity. Then in chapter 14, our text this morning, just a few short verses we're going to cover. It's an issue of identity, and their identity is clear. They are unique in many ways. Verse 14 says, Then, I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. This issue of will God provide? Will he keep safe those that are his? And we've seen already in Revelation that that doesn't mean that there aren't those who will be martyred, those Will be. They will be taken to heaven and they will cry out, How long, O Lord? But here they seems to seal these. And there's some debate over that sealing and whether it means they survive the tribulation or not. For sure, it means they are sealed from the wrath of God. That's for sure. And the picture here is that with the lamb. And that's where they are always associated. They are the ones, verse 4, who follow the lamb. And they're simply standing on the Mount of Zion. That is, they're in Jerusalem. Chapter 14, like 12 and 13, doesn't necessarily come with a timestamp, which makes it a little hard here. It would seem that 14 is going to look forward, not only with the 144,000, but also these angelic pronouncements and the harvest that comes at the end. And then we're going to step back into the bowl judgments. And so we're kind of skipping forward in time. And so it seems to be this is perhaps the millennial kingdom where they're pictured standing on Mount Zion with him coming 
terrain. And they're identified not only as the 12 tribes of Israel, but by the fact that they are ones whose name and the name of his father are written on their forehead. And he has provided for them, it seems, throughout here, protection, unique. But they're ones who it would seem would be evangelistic throughout the tribulation. There at least are some evangelists that they can't get who continue to preach the word throughout the earth, not just the two witnesses, but these who are sealed, but even continue to seemingly preach into this millennium. And they're sealed by his name. And it just is a reminder that God does provide and that he does provide, number one, and verse one, clearly, protection. They are marked out in chapter seven, as we saw. If you go to chapter nine, verse four, It says that they were told, well actually back up to 9 verse 1 to get a little context of the fifth angel sounding the trumpet here. I saw a star, and we talked about that at the time, this language of representing Satan from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the pit of the abyss was given to him. Because stars aren't given keys. We understand it represents Satan. And he opens the abyss, the pit of the abyss, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Demons and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth. So another one of those tips, remember? That's why we don't view them. There's lots of figurative language and we, we kind of can see when it's meant to be figurative and locusts hurt grass. Well, these aren't locusts, they're, they're demons. And so they're, they're not there to hurt grass, they're there to hurt people. So they're not gonna hurt the grass or any green thing or any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. And so they're permitted here not to kill anyone for those five months before then that changes. But the ones who have the seal of God on their forehead are these 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, 144,000 who have been protected and sealed for a purpose. It could be that these are going to enter the millennial alive. And we know that somebody's entering the millennium and someone's having children. And all who go in are going to be Believers, but at some point those children are going to rebel as we'll see as you get towards Revelation. But they're going to, these 144,000 are going to avoid the Antichrist system, which in 13 is you're not going to be by yourself. How are they going to survive? Because of God's protection. Just like the remnant of old throughout all of Israel, he maintained a remnant. And similar, you took out throughout church history, the whole idea of being sanctified, set apart. God sets apart his own and he has sealed those who are in his church as well. Like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, that in him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So every time I run into this idea of sealed, I, I wish, and I, I said, don't go find me some random heirloom something. But they're really cool rings, right? Roman rings. Have you seen them where they have the seal? And they, all they were, the rings they wore, and you dip it in wax, and you, you seal 
things. And it's good imagery here when he's saying you are sealed in him. It's saying you have this seal of approval. He has marked you as his own. That's this idea of sealing the 144,000. And that same idea of you are his, he is yours because you are sealed by what? Not by a stamp, not by wax, but by God's spirit. That's what marks out the believer, the spirit that indwells them. It's the pledge that is you're not completely, you haven't, you've been promised inheritance, but you've probably checked your bank account this week and you don't have all the riches, right? That Ephesians promised yet. No. Of course, it's not just talking monetary or material, but it is to say you get all that Christ has, redemption of God's own possession. That is what he has done. He sealed here. You will be his and you, he will keep you. Not just in this life, but in eternity forever. It's that idea of sealing it. You are his. We saw that throughout Hebrews chapter 12, that idea of being Sealed that legitimate sons face discipline. Legitimate sons face difficulties. And so if you are facing difficulty and you are facing challenges, join the club. That's par for the course for the believer. A loving father disciplines those who are his, those who are heirs, those who are sons, as we looked at in Hebrews chapter 12. We need reminders of this, of God's love, of God's protection and Verse 1. Now, this is unique to the 145. They're protected in a way. You're going to see they're pure in ways you can't fathom. There's no lie that has ever come out of their tongue. That's not me. That's not you. But we are sealed in a similar way in the sense of the Spirit has sealed us for something. God will keep us. And we need, as we come to the end of 12 and 13, and you see all the destruction that is brought by Satan, who's trying to again thwart God's perfect plan, but will fail it's encouraging to see, look at what's going on with God's people throughout the millennium. And even he'll address, we're not going to get to six and seven, but even there you're going to see addressing that same every nation, tribe, and tongue. Fear God, give him glory. Because the hour of judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of waters. So yes, what is going on with God's people, Israel? What is going on with the nations? Same thing, they're being called, they're being preserved to be proclaimers of God's truth. This kind of sealing addresses the issue we were thinking of, of what fuels fear. Fears of being unloved or having no purpose, or even the fear of not knowing the future. One way that this is addressed is to say that you are his. You can trust him, that he is a loving father who will care and will provide. He does that here for the 144 in such a unique way. But he does it for us as well. Even if for like us, we might face martyrdom, he still cares and provides. And that is the reminder and comfort that we need. He provides protection, but he also provides a unique redemption story. A unique redemption story. And this is unique for the 144,000. You're probably going to read this and go, it doesn't sound like me. It's because it's not you. I know it's crazy. The Bible's not always about us. I get it. But it can be just as encouraging for us when we understand what he is doing through them. In verse 2 through verse 5, you see this unique redemption story of this way in which they are purposefully saved with unique opportunity for ministry. And what they hear in verse 2 is a voice from heaven. And you're kind of tempted as you read this to see and look and say, maybe the the choir that's singing is the 144,000, but it doesn't appear to be that. Seems to be similar. I've seen that around the throne from heaven comes a noise. 
So John hears, a, he's seeing the 144, but he's hearing a voice from heaven. So he, visually he's seeing the 144,000 with the lamb on Mount Zion, but hearing from heaven a voice. Like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, which heaven's, according to Revelation, a very loud place. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Which is interesting, he even describes the, the kind of music here. Strings. And he says what he heard is that they sang. So I tend to think of this not as 144, but the angelic host, a new song. We've seen that before as well. They, they sang a new song in heaven before. But this song's unique. Before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 144, who have been purchased from the earth. Well, that's unique. Pretty unique that they're the only ones who can learn to sing the song that way. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But this unique redemption story is that they're uniquely set apart. The, the norm is in this age, especially in an age where we're not facing severe tribulation and trial, because Paul does address singleness, but is that you get married, but not these. It says these are men, the ones who've not been defiled by women. They have a specific ministry. Almost think set apart the way Paul says he was set apart, single to do ministry. His concerns are strictly for the Lord and doesn't have family, which you can see being a huge blessing given all the judgments we've seen that have come and that will come in the seven bull judgments. But they're the ones who've not been defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have a soul duty, a soul position, similar to, say, the, the, the priesthood. And these have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the lamb. Again, it describes their uniqueness. Whether those are firstfruits that are simply unique or there's fruits to follow. I, I actually read quite a bit on it. I'm not sure. But I know it does stamp out as for them that they are uniquely purchased among men for a very specific purpose in the tribulation period to be set apart, to be God's preachers in this way. It'd be a pretty big advantage here if it was true of every preacher, verse 5, that no lie was found in their mouth for they are blameless. As we've seen allusions over and over again from the Old Testament, Zephaniah 3.13 alludes this same idea that a remnant of Israel will do no injustice and not speak falsehood, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. They are not going to fear because they've been sealed, set apart, protected in a unique way. They don't need to lie. Think about that. They're not afraid. Because they know what they are set out to do and that they are protected. And then therefore, there is no reason for them to lie. And it seems that even the uniqueness, they are blameless. Which is miraculous, really, in its nature. Because it would seem that they are born before the tribulation period. This is unique in every way that God has set them apart and provided this unique redemption story. It's true of really every age. I think I look at Abraham and I go, that's a pretty unique redemption story. You look at Israel, you look at prophets, you look at the church, you look at apostles like Paul. Unique. The way he was even sovereignly prepared for ministry. 
that he would have to the Gentiles before he was saved miraculously on the road to Damascus. And each one of us uniquely equipped to do certain things. I think there's a way in here as you think about this idea of this unique redemption story, which again, for them, is unique to them. And so unique that the song they sing, only they know. And you can't help but probably if you're like me, go, well, that doesn't seem right. Should, how, how come I don't get to sing that song? And I think good and bad, that's completely human, which is good and bad. Because we get bogged down and we look across that fence and you tend to think the grass is always greener and you wish you had maybe those blessings or maybe you're the pastor or myself. Like, wish I had this or the bigger church or this or that. And you go, no, you are you. Your story is yours. God has set you apart to do certain ministry that only you can do. And I think there's comfort in that because you see only they can do what they're meant to do, but it is inversely true that we can do only what we're meant to do in this age. Sometimes we're like Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. After reconciling with Christ, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. And eventually, you know, the third time, he just, you know the thoughts of all men, Lord. You, you know. But even after all that, and you're back to, man, Peter, Peter's got it. He, he, he gets it finally. Man, right away, what does Peter say? He looks over and he says, Lord, what about this man? And the description in the verse before is that he's looking over the one that the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is the way John refers to himself. He's looking over at John. He says, what about John? That's his first question. What about his life? What about his ministry? Because Peter's been told that he is, yes, you're going to show your love. You're going to demonstrate it by facing a similar death. You're going to be crucified. Church history would say crucified upside down for Christ. And so immediately going, well, what about John? And Jesus says to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 144,000 to me kind of sit out there as an example of this as well, that I kind of wonder lots of things about them and why this. And then like I said, it just strikes me the song, what, this unique song. Why, why do they get a song? I want a song. And you go back to Peter and John and you go, you know what? That's not for me. What is it if the Lord saves them uniquely, gives them this amazing ministry and works through them in miraculous ways that he never worked through me? What's that to me? My job is to follow Christ. My job is, think of today in the church, the Great Commission. That's my job, and that's unique to me. And in that sense, they don't have that opportunity that you and I do. And instead of being jealous or wishing I could have those things, start to embrace what you do have and what is yours. Your opportunity to glorify the Lord that is unique. Because the reality is, it doesn't matter what you do or unique ministries you do have or gifts you have, it isn't about us, which we've seen in Revelation. Flip back to Revelation chapter four. When you get to the throne room of heaven, there's not gonna be somebody getting praised other than Jesus and Jesus alone. If you remember back to the, the 24 elders and we looked at them and understood them as the church, But there in chapter 4, verse 10, it says, The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, 
Worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed in you, or you, they existed and were created. It's a whole picture here of believers casting down the crowns that they're given. That is to say, even what you do do, and because people have an issue with that, well, if you receive crowns, well, what, if, what is that? Are we all being competitive and I'm trying to get more crowns than you're getting and, and that kind of thing? Well, no, that's, that's not the point. If, if you have the wrong motivation, you're not going to get the crown. The point is, though, we serve the Lord the best to our abilities. And it would seem, without getting into the whole concept of what it looks to have awards and crowns throughout the New Testament, it is to say, whatever you get, whatever you've been given, whatever is uniquely yours and you've been able to do, a little piece that you've been able to serve the Lord in, you're going to cast it back down because it's about Christ receiving more glory because of what you've done. It's, it's about him, not about what we've done. It's about ultimately what Christ has done. And so that's when you think about heaven. It's like, well, I'm not going to be wondering, dealing with discontent or jealousy because we'll all be there with Christ and it'll be, this is all made right and we'll glorify him. Your life is going to be your song and only you can Learn it. So the idea of comparison is the thief of joy. I think you look at life and you, you said you, you wonder why this happened, why that happened. Why do I have that struggle? Why do I have that tribulation? Why do I struggle with that sin? And again, instead of looking and wishing you were fighting or dealing with something else, rather embrace and go, you know what? This circumstance God has given uniquely to me to glorify him at this moment of Revelation chapter four, that that moment, the way you handled that trial, that difficulty was honorable and it glorified the Lord. And whatever was good, you eventually say, it only did it because what the Lord gave me and you will throw it back at his feet. God is sovereign over today, tomorrow and forever. I mean, isn't Revelation pretty practical as you think about even something that seems a little bit distant here of the 144,000, but we can even learn from them the way God works and that he keeps and he provides for his own, that he's sovereign and he's going to care and provide and he is sovereign and going to care and provide for us. And we may want to know every detail of the future. Maybe that's how we want to deal with fear. I wish I could know. But even then, like I said, it really doesn't fix any real massive issues. Ultimately, God's the one in, who's in control. And he's going to provide in his own timing, and he's going to provide uniquely. But he does provide. And it reminds us that he will hold us fast, that he will provide, that he will carry, and can always provide for us, and that we can always find complete satisfaction in Christ and be content in him no matter the difficulty or the circumstance. And that if you do glorify in him, glorify him in that, it's just the very thing in which Christ will be glorified, which you will see demonstrated one day at the throne as we cast it back at his feet. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can see Christ glorified yet again this morning through your word as we look towards a future and we see the things that one day all will see, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
Lord, may we continue to look at our own hearts and our own lives in a way in which we understand that in this life, still walking in flesh, that we struggle with fears. We struggle to trust and believe in your good promises. We think that, yes, maybe you are sovereign in the future, but somehow not over our lives today. So remind us that, no, you are the same today as you were yesterday, and you'll be the same tomorrow and the same forever. That you are in control, that you are sovereign, that we can rest in you because you are a loving Father. And yes, we are being transformed into the image of your Son. Yes, there is a way in which trials bring us to completion, as James says, and let us see those for what they are find comfort in that. And when we don't understand, simply lean on you and simply trust, knowing that one day we will. Encourage us this morning with these truths as we look to Christ and as we sing even now about what he has done for us on the cross. We ask this in his name. Amen.